Hello, this is Clarence Moy with Awards Daily here with Sasha Stone, the main content provider of Awards Daily. We are thrilled to be here with uh, Vengeance writer, director, star, BJ Novak. BJ, welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me here. Both huge fans of this film and what it has to say. And Sasha, I know you have, you brought this to my attention, so I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. Um, well, and I was just, I was just kind of saying that I, I, um, I don't really find a lot of original writing that, that catches my notice in a given year. You know, they're good writers, but in general, what I find now is a lot of directors, um, a lot of directors tend to just write a script of a movie that they want to direct. And that's what I see the trend lately of these, of, of so many movies that are Whenever mm -hmm. I see written and directed by, I always think, okay, fine. It's going to be not really written by, written by, but written as a function of directing a movie. But this was, um, I've only seen one other movie this year that I think can touch it in terms of really, really just stands on its own as great writing. And that's um, the Banshees of Inna Sharon. And I put oh, these well, two on the screen. Yeah. So we're going to ask you a bunch of questions. I just wanted to get that out of the way um, oh, and just let you know that I, I really... Um, I really think it's just absolutely monumental in terms of um, insight of the kind of what's happening in general in our country, a macro version of it in a way that I think a lot of people would be too afraid to address. So, and I absolutely loved the ending and I know somebody was out there writing about it and saying it, they didn't believe it. I thought it was mm -hmm. absolutely brilliant. I loved it. Anyway, go ahead, Clarence, with the questions. Do you <laughs> so, so, PJ, um, where did you, I know that you went on a, a road trip that sort of opened your eyes, opened your mind to, you know, different perspectives than we see in New York and L.A. Tell me um, about the sort of the gestation of the script for Vengeance. Well, first, Sasha, thank you very much. Uh, when you write something, when I write something, it is a constant dialogue in my head of, are, am I crazy? <laughs> is this crazy? And um, sort of the dream is that someone will will validate that they saw what you were dreaming of, of someone seeing. So thank you, uh, Beyond. Uh, the road trip that I took for the movie, or it was several really, I was very scared to write this, which is what excited me about it. And I wanted this movie about a shallow, myopic uh, but redeemable, at least in my eyes, New Yorker, uh, Ben Manalowitz, who goes to report somewhat exploitatively on a podcast that takes place in in sort of one of these murder murder towns, as 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 I see people seeing them uh, in small town Texas. I well, first when I came up with the idea, I thought, oh, what's I thought of this as a comedy. And Sasha, you mentioned that a lot of. Um, when you see written directed by it's often a director who writes the screenplay to to provide the material to direct and i often find and i have nothing um judgmental about that at all i i admire wherever someone's coming from i think there's also a lot of actor writers who come at it from something for them to act and again mm -hmm. i 
to me, it's all the same thing. I happen to come at everything from writing. So when I write something, I think, oh, I can show people exactly who I mean when I'm describing this guy. I can do it in my face. I can do it with the timing. Um, and with the directing too, when I describe this house, I can show this house. I can I can make the timing. My dream is, is to start with the writing always and everything else be a function of that. But I admire the people that are their real way into anything as directing or acting. Because to me, I truly see it as the same thing. I, I see all of it as imagining something and then showing it to people using whatever skills you have. So all of which is to say that when I envisioned small town Texas and the the foreignness to a guy kind of from my world to go there, I thought, well, what does he really see? You know, this movie has to be somewhat objective to, to make the comedy and the drama work. You know, what does he think he's seeing? What does he really see? So I, back when Twitter was not a, a toxic symbol, um, I actually, it always was. And the movie actually makes fun of that <laughs> to an extent. But I, I wrote on Twitter, I, I'm looking for someone to show me around small town uh, Texas in the Abilene area. Uh, please write to this email address. My um, assistant at the time, Ava, fielded them. And people would write in and and say, oh, I'm from here. I could show you this. I could show you that. And I ended up visiting uh, the town of Merkel, Texas, with someone who offered to show me around. And then I, would, I went on another trip with my friend I met through a, another writer I had reached out to named Andrea Lopez, introduced me, who I've still never met, introduced me to Christian Wallace, a Texas Monthly writer from, uh, from not from Alp, from Andrews, Texas. And he would drive me around. I met a lot of people. And simply the fact that people were eager to show me around and so friendly to me. And of course, they had seen me on The Office. So there's some excitement of, oh, he's from TV. But I think there was also... I expected a lot of um, judgment and suspicion of this, you know, very mm -hmm. blue state media presenting guy who says he's going to make a comedy about your town. Um, and whether or not they were nervous of what I would do, they they showed me every benefit of the doubt and every bit of hospitality. And that alone was uh, foreign to me, exotic, suspicious, exciting and a lot of that found its way into the movie. So even the way I was shown around, let alone, okay, they love Whataburger, but they can't put their finger on why. You know, all these little things that I enjoyed putting in the movie, it was really the spirit and how I felt receiving that spirit that I thought was so interesting. Mm, God, I love... One thing that your movie made me think about a lot was, you know, when you get into the... When he, when he, he gets in the fight in the end with... Um, the woman who plays the mother, what's her name? She's yeah. from Succession. She's great. Jason yeah. Cameron. Um, yeah. And it it made me think that, um, that we don't benefit from leaving out so many people from our culture, you know, and that, and that what is a life, you, you know, you, you have this, this moment where they're saying, <clears throat> you know, what do they have here? You know, except conspiracy theories, <laughs> like they don't have storytelling, you know, Aristotle, they don't have richness that we all get from an abundance of culture that's aimed at us. But so yeah. many people in America don't have that. 
And um, I thought that that moment really resonated. Um, and so that really tells me a lot that you really, you didn't just write this from what you thought it might be like. You actually took the time to get to know people in that area. Um, there's so many yeah, funny... As much as I could. I couldn't, I can't pretend that I, I lived it deeply. Um, but that's also part of the story. You know, there was a line where Sharon, that character says, we don't go home after this. You know, we're not exploring this. Um, and, you know, it's often the cut lines that are most on the nose, I find, in writing. And then you cut them because you don't need them. But uh, yeah, there was also a bit where Ty explains to his young brother, known as El Stupido, um, you know, remember that book, The Sneetches, how some people had stars on their bellies? Well, the world's kind of like that, except some people got like blue check marks and everybody's got to hear their voices all <laughs> the time. <laughs> Ben's one of those people. <laughs> um, I do miss it, but that scene got a little long and, and, um, and, but yeah, that, that, um, that monologue that Ben gives to Sharon in the parking lot is very vicious and it is very much what my own darkest, angriest blue state version of a tell-off would be. And I asked, you know, my very progressive younger brother, what would you say if you could say anything? You know, I really researched, okay, what are, what would someone say? And yet in the scene, the way it, it plays in the movie that I'm very happy about is that you're not really with Ben. You're kind of wincing that he's being so mean yeah. because he's he's lost the plot. He's lost the point to say these things. The emotional reality is for the people who are at home in this place that are extending hospitality. And yet it's also very intimate to scream at someone about what you really think, which we also don't do, which is its own version of condescension. So that scene, I'm glad you highlighted it because it was one that I worried about a lot and really tried to get really go on on both extremes as much as I could to sort of find the emotional truth. And one thing I learned with all of this, I come into this, you know, as I said, as a writer, oh, what are all the, the greatest lines I could write for everybody? I really do think like a writer, but everything gets cut that isn't emotional truth at the end of the day, you know? And it's humbling for me because I want to write, I want to be Oscar Wilde and every line is, you know, quoted a hundred years from now. But in reality, those are the lines that, take you out of the story. And, and it's really, you know, an actor's face can convey, you know, 10,000 words, you know. I was just going to say, you're great with the deadpan reactions. Like when he says, you <laughs> brings up Schindler's List as a movie, you look like one of the characters. <laughs> yeah, you look like a lot of those guys, actually. <laughs> I love that reaction shot. But um, I'll just say this quickly, Clarence, and I'll pass it over to you, which is that um, I was dreading that when I recommended this to my friend, Jeff Wells, who runs Hollywood elsewhere, I said, you know, I was dreading him watching this movie because we fight all the time about this very subject because in 2020 I had gotten a moment where I was on Twitter and I was watching all this anger and dehumanization aimed at Trump supporters. And it just got to me like something happened and I decided I needed to get to know that world and so I've spent all this time the last two years inside Trump world, and he knows this about me, and it bothers him, and he's angry. But I found that knowing that that scene was in there was helpful to me to recommend it to him, because otherwise he would have thought, you know, what is this guy saying? Like, these are terrible mm -hmm. people. Does he mm -hmm. know that they're terrible people? And so I thought that that was a good kind of both sides way in for a fish out of water story in a way. Mm -hmm. um, but also the one key thing that really struck me was that 
you know, you say Oscar Wilde. I say, I say Frank Capra. I say John Steinbeck. Like you're telling stories about the struggle of life that we don't see very much because we live in such a polarized uh, country. And, you know, people who are working class and who live in these towns, like they exist, they have stories, you know, this is a a wonderful, heartbreaking story. And it's, it's even, um, it's even more complicated because, and this is sort of something that, that Ben is walloped by at the end, this realization that's pointed out to him, which is not only are these stories not being told, but they kind of are being told, but they're being told from this lens, this sort of true crime, sordid, um, you know, sad, you know, last picture show meets uh, Dahmer, you know, type of lens where small towns are meant to portray a certain type of character that is a certain type of, you know, noble savage at best and, you know, toxic evil at worst. But the there is a genre of people and genre of story that Blue State tells about Red State and about each other. I mean, it, anyone that's given the microphone today has a temptation and often um, a bad habit of turning people into characters, which is what this character was doing. And I'm sure that that it was it had a lot to do with my fear of doing exactly that, of going to Texas for you know, a couple of months and thinking, oh, I, I got this story, <laughs> you know, um, when in fact you, you need to have some confidence, but also a lot of, a lot of humility. Earlier, you talked about the process of, of going through the screenplay and, and, and writing all these great lines for these characters. And then what going through what I'll call just killing your darlings, taking out what didn't work, what doesn't fit that kind of thing. How did the, but I also know that you directed this film for the first time, um, you, this was your directorial debut. How did the screenplay evolve through that process of like wor- working it out and working with the actors and, and directing yourself essentially? Well, um, Cooper Samuelson, who is Jason Blum's top creative exec, was uh, extremely passionate and helpful shaping this with me and um, really had his targets on a lot of darlings early on. Um, some of which uh, actually we were, we had, I think all of his darlings, all of my darlings that he tried to kill, he killed. But um, <laughs> but that was, helpful. you know, the reason that I wanted to go to Blumhouse was that they had made Get Out and mm-hmm. I wanted to make a movie called Vengeance. And I thought this will be a good influence on me that um, that I don't go too far in in sort of the writer direction, having come from writing so much that people who are used to making money on movies with titles like Vengeance and, you know, The Purge and and things like that. So I, you know, I overwrite and I fall in love and then I um, struggle to cut. Uh, You know, I guess like anybody, I think one lesson I learned from The Office, working on the show The Office, was that it's okay to overwrite and then have the actors read it. And, you know, and the survival of the fittest in terms of feeling it in the room. One thing I, you know, I started as a writer before I ever worked on the office going way back. And, um, and I was shocked at how different the actors process things than the writers, because you can really have a fantasy as a writer that you're writing something wonderful and, um, and you'll never know that it wasn't. No one reads a book and then writes the author. This paragraph was superfluous, you know, but if you're an actor, you know, 
when it's not working, you feel it in your bones and you're the one in the line of fire for it when something is inauthentic or boring uh, or corny or whatever. So often you feel it for them. Having been an actor now as well, especially learning all this in the office, you can tell from watching the actors, listening to the actors and feeling for the actors, you know, what is succeeding and what isn't. So sometimes I would overwrite and uh, do a table, redo a rehearsal and realize what had to go. As I, as I look at the film too, um, one of the things that I'm, I'm most attracted to with it is it's, it is a deeply funny film. It's funny in a way that, that, that comedy and, and kind of Sasha referenced this earlier, comedy's not really done that way anymore. And you come from a long line of comedy, like, you know, as you mentioned from the office sort of what's your take on, on the world of comedy right now in terms of this, and particularly in relationship to this film where its lines are biting and true and, and, bring to life things that people don't really talk about in a broad comic sense anymore. What, what do you, where are you in that world and kind of where do you think it's, it's going um, as we look forward to the next sort of 10 years? Well, I think that the best comedy right now is in dramas and it's hidden. I mean, to me, the best part of Jordan Peele's work, I mean, obviously I'm biased coming from comedy, but I, I think it's no accident that he is, he is a gifted comedian and was known for that first. I mean, the number of times the theater laughed out loud at Kiki Palmer or Daniel Kaluuya in Nope is, um, is something that people forget as soon as the movie's over, you know, they just remember having liked it, uh, for other reasons. Succession is so funny. Uh, White Lotus is so funny. That maybe is, is counted more as a comedy, but I think a lot of people call it a drama. The Wolf of Wall Street, I remember, um, you know, people, Tarantino, these to me are, are comedies that really integrate the comedy in the drama and the statement and the suspense so magnificently that you don't even think of it as a comedy. And for whatever reason, I think that the comedy genre lately has been tired I don't know why, but I wonder if it has something to do with the comedy has sort of migrated into dramas, which are funnier than they've ever been to my eye. The Sopranos was very funny. I remember working in the office thinking, I think my favorite comedy is The Sopranos because, you know, <laughs> Soprano, yeah. like he gets really big laughs and we stole a little of that for Steve Carell's character when, you know, when, 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 Michael Scott is is at his most passionate. He'll often misspeak in a funny way, which is yeah. funny and poignant at the same time. And, and that's a Tony Soprano move. So, you know, I think with this movie, I, I always thought of it as a comedy, but I wanted to put him in as, as much a dramatic situation as possible and have that all integrate. So I think that, I don't know exactly how that answers your question, but it is what interests me most about comedy right now is that the best comedy is hidden as the secret ingredient in things that aren't called comedies. I think that you, what you do so well is you, and by oh, the way, Aaron Sorkin, Aaron Sorkin, very funny too. You know, Aaron a few Sorkin good men, a few Listen, good men. A, I, all over. What about, what about blue velvet is funny. Like blue velvet is like a horrific movie, but it's also really funny. And like in yeah. the eighties, we were all laughing at blue velvet at all the worst scenes, you know, thinking this is so funny, but of course it's not, it's horrific, but it's also, funny right. but um 
I think in in this movie, I think you you disarm you disarm the viewer really with the comedy. Like you, you know, when when you say a few funny lines and it's you go, you can relax a little. Okay, this is funny. You know, this is funny. This is a this is going to be all right. You know, I'm I I can care about this guy. You know, because he's he's making himself the joke in a way at the beginning. You know, that's what I loved about it, um, and not commenting on or lecturing the audience in any way, which was such a gift. Um, I thought um, when you were when you were starting out writing it, um, and and I know you talked about how it changed because your character that you play is different from you, right? I, I mean, he's so. not, you're not, you're not that, <laughs> you're not that guy. And you said you wanted to write about a shallow guy, but, but he is confronted by the end because, you know, they confront yes. him and say, well, what about you? And then this girl or whatever that, yeah. I just love how you sew, you sewed that together. So, so what, what brought that up? Like why, why make a movie about this guy, this particular guy? Well, I mean, I think this guy is more like me than I wish. Uh, he certainly <laughs> is. You know, when I started writing it about seven years ago, you know, the very first idea I had for it, I was more like him and more uh, sort of uh, disgusted by myself, you know. Um, <laughs> so I, with sort of shallowness and um, cockiness uh, and uh, and I I think I, you know, as part of the journey of wanting to grow up, I, I would daydream, oh, what if this happened to me? You know, what if I really were pulled out of my comfort zone with some karma like this, like one of your hookups is dead and they want you at the funeral and they think that you were serious and you miss, you know, all of those things. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I think maybe part of that fantasy is being a protagonist in a story. You need to have some heroic um, soul or there's no movie, there's no plot. So I, I wonder if that was, how do I take the worst version of myself and try to find something um, admirable deep down inside a guy like me? So I think I was, uh, I, I am, Sasha, more similar to that guy than I wish, or at least used to be, hopefully used to be. So I, I did know him very well. I knew the sort of you know, I know what it's like to hang out with John Mayer because I do. <laughs> like, and he's he's not like that either. But I know that's a <laughs> reputation. So you know, I was like, where? When do I feel at my coolest? But anyone looking at me would be like, wouldn't quite totally agree. Oh, when I'm hanging out with John Mayer at Soho House, you know, and I, I called John and I, I said, you know, would you do this? And and he said, yeah. So really, starting at that, you know, um, depth of shallowness and and journeying to something very earnest, which, um, which I also like to think was in me, uh, sort of a, a desire to connect and a, you know, the way that Ben, my character really sort of subtly melts at that, at that dinner table when people are actually asking him, um, sincere questions and giving him a compliment that they mean with the benefit of the doubt. It, it's all so easy and uh, the fact that they give him a little love, even under mistaken pretenses, I think, warms him up. And I think that that is all something, it probably came out subconsciously, but it, it is something that came out of the worst parts of me and, uh, you know, my my hope that I could find better parts. But I think that's, you know, I think that's a lot of the journey of personal writing, I would guess. I don't know. It's pretty unique to see in this day and age, I think, that kind of self-awareness. Um, 
in such a big picture way. I mean, I think there's a lot of self-awareness, a lot of navel gazing, but there's not a lot of uh, giving people the benefit of the doubt kind of thing, which I think is such an important message and will resonate through time um, as people look back on this movie. You know what? I, I want to ask you two questions. I don't know how much time you have here, but um, uh, one is, did you, did you think that you were making a Western? Because I think this movie's a Western. I mean, it really does have that motif. Did you plan on that? Am I just, it's like in the press notes and I missed it or something. No, it, it evolved that, that way. Uh, I, I thought of it at first, like a, an Albert Brooks movie, you know, I thought, you know, oh, you follow one guy, I play him. So it's sort of like that, you know, comedic filmmaker tradition, uh, somewhat personal and, you know, deadpan comedy. And you just follow this guy from beginning to end on this winding journey. And I thought of Lost in America, his movie. And I also thought of Crimes of Crimes and Misdemeanors in terms of tone. Yeah. And neither of those I would call Westerns, even though Lost in America does have those landscapes. But um you know, I think it's funny, Sasha, you said something before that that the comedy disarms you for the drama. I always thought of it as the drama disarms you for the comedy. You know, you take this character, you take this world very seriously. So when when something funny happens, you actually buy it, you know, which is another thing I learned from The Office is that we we really wrote it like a drama so that so that you you'd care when the jokes hit. You wouldn't you wouldn't see them coming. So I think just making that environment richer and richer, I once I started meeting with department heads as a director, you know, the cinematographer, the location scout, I really got hooked into the emotional reason to make it more like a Western, that this was an unlikely, you know, city, city cowboy coming to town, a stranger comes to town, but I told the location scout and and all the departments that, you know, Texas is not just, you know, the last picture show. It's not just this idealized thing. It's also vape shops and highways and and guys on the side of the road with AirPods in trying to get uh, signal because they're from somewhere else. You know, I think putting an unlikely person in the modern Western landscape to me was I won't say a statement on its own, but it was it was of a piece with the movie I was trying to tell, which is someone really lost in a dangerous place who doesn't belong there and needs to find some something inside it. I don't know. It, it, maybe I'm just romanticizing what I found in it, but it, it it did feel more and more like it should it should be a western. And you know, without spoiling anything, you know, there is a there are a couple of characters that really have that sort of Western showdown structure to them that I thought would be very uh, sort of emotionally correct for my character's journey that, that happened to be Western structure. So hopefully people will find some playfulness in that, but it's meant to just go, you know, play it straight. Well, I have to bring up that it's a spoiler. So if anybody hasn't seen the movie and you don't want a spoiler, you should, skip this part but i have to bring it up because it's really important which is the um ashton kutcher ashton kutcher is so good in this movie mm -hmm. he's so good that i thought where has this guy been like this isn't he's an amazing actor and he yeah. just has such a screen presence but that part of the movie is the only part that my friend said that he didn't like mm -hmm. but i liked it and the reason that i liked it was not necessarily because of what he did that he that he deserved what he got but what he said that monologue 
mm-hmm. that you have to say at the end of the movie is so powerful. It's just, I think it's, it's one of the best bits of writing I've ever heard. And I, I, uh, I wonder, did you think of that too? Um, we don't have to say what happens, but just that is, what do you think was the thing? You know, what do you think was the moment where it was like, okay, well, this has got to be done. And that, that is what I think makes it a Western, by the way. Yeah. And uh, he's even wearing that, that all white suit at the end, which when I saw it proposed, I thought, oh, that's perfect because what a play on the, the black hat, white hat, and, and the sort of ambiguity and reversals you see in the scene. Um, but it was an accident that I just came to love. Uh, I think, yeah, I think that was the part that that gave me chills when Ashton said that line, which I I didn't know. It was hard to get. I knew structurally what it meant that they would have that showdown, but what line actually forced it um yeah i think i think you're right i think it was that he was just so utterly correct about the world and the world that ben was part of and didn't want to be true and there was no other way out but to to go on this other primal path of of vengeance and of ending something so Mm. you know i saw it and I told Ashton when I cast him, I said, this character is the best and worst mirror of who this guy wants to be, you know? And the fact that Ashton is so handsome and so charismatic and, uh, you know, when I met him for the part, I had known him years ago because he actually gave me my first acting role on punked back in 2004 or something. And I hadn't seen him except for maybe five seconds since then. And uh, I went to his office and I pointed to a whiteboard. He's an investor. People probably know as well. I said, tell me about this company. He told me about a company. I said, that's the character. You know, (laughs) I would buy anything this guy is selling. Um, And to just channel the producer Ashton's charisma was really the key. And anyway, my point was that this was someone, you know, Ben goes in a heart of darkness way to, you know, the dark spot on the map to him, you know, the the part of a red state that you can't even get great reception and meets a Colonel Kurtz type that is yeah. who he's always wanted to be. And yet it's darker than he is too, you know? So I think that is, that's what gave Ben chills at the end. I think he was confronting himself. That's how I thought of it when I, when I first came up with the idea that that's how the that's where the movie was going. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a beautiful mirror image that way. Like I love the movies where there are two characters like Seven, David Fincher's Seven is one of these. No mm-hmm. Country for Old Men is another one where you have the two characters that kind of mirror each other. They're sort of the same but they're you know, they're opposite obviously. And I really did get that especially with the woman in the middle. The woman is the you know, both of both the way mm-hmm. that she's right. treated each guy you know, was, was different, but, but there, you were saying there's a similarity there, you know, there's a, a similarity there. It was just, it's just a beautiful movie. And, and I just, I want to thank you so much for making it. And I know that like people are probably not watching it as much as they will over time, but I have a feeling it's going to be one of those movies people talk about in years to come. Well, it is, it is a dream come true to be taken so seriously 
as a writer. I, I really kind of can't believe my ears with this conversation. So thank you for, um, for uh, I don't know, all the things you said and, and even more all the things you asked. You know, I could talk all day about what I meant to do, but um, but what matters is that someone is interested to hear. So I, it means a lot to me. Thank you. Um, okay, and, last question. Are you planning on doing another movie soon? Yeah. Making it. Yes. Yeah, it's an ambitious one. I'm working on it right now. Um, I can't wait. I'm excited. Well, I'll let you know about it soon. I just, I need to get a little more under my belt and then I'll, I'll see who's interested Wonderful. in. Yeah. Fantastic. Clarence. And thank you for uh, making me realize how much in my life I say 100%. Yes. Well, <laughs> when we did that opening scene, the, you know, I told John Mayer, everything I say, I just say 100% and then, and then say something totally different. And um, <laughs> we just kept 100% was our transition line. And then COVID hit and we paused for seven months and John would anxiously text me like, I'm just nervous that someone else is going to claim the 100% thing oh. before we do. Because it does ruin that phrase for people when they realize, oh my God, I hear that all the time. Yep. <laughs> 100%. 100%. never means 100%. It means sure. It means I guess it means like 60% is what it means. Um, but and now, by the way, there's an inflation going on because now I'm hearing like thousand percent, 150%. I know. So, um, but yes, I liked, and I love a movie with a catchphrase too. So I'm very happy that to the people that saw this, it has a catchphrase. Well, BJ, thank you so much. This has been a treat. Thank you both. Of movie and uh, best of luck to you. And can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you very much. Hope to talk to you about it soon.